Welcome. You're listening to Living Faith Podcast. Starry skies, see your hand in time, in mind to lead me through the night. Today's message is the fourth in our series entitled Meals with the Master. Uh, We began by looking how at, at these dinners, at these banquets, Jesus broke down unchristian barriers. He, he busted up unhealthy traditions that were happening in his area. And then we looked really close at the main attraction at these meals, which indeed is Jesus Christ. Regardless of the beginning or the original intent of that dinner, once Jesus arrived, all other guests, all other dinner elements became secondary. Jesus is what matters most at the dinners and in our lives as disciples. Last week, we talked about a new option that Jesus brought to dinner. After generations had focused on guilt and judgment, Jesus offered a new option, forgiveness and a chance to change. He's not willing that any should perish, but all would come to repentance. And so he brought a new option, forgiveness and a chance to change. This week, we're going to look at another meal. And it's a meal that kicks off similarly to the one we looked at last week in Luke chapter 7. Another Pharisee invites Jesus to a banquet. But this time, there's... No surrendered, repentant sinner like we discovered in Luke chapter 7. This crowd in Luke chapter 11 is a much different crowd. So follow along with me in the scriptures, either on the screen, on your device, or in your paper copy. Luke chapter 11 and verse 37. The Bible says, And as he spoke, speaking about Jesus, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him, So Jesus went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled. Another translation says he was amazed that Jesus had not first washed before dinner. Right from the get-go, Jesus didn't meet the host's expectations. The Bible says he marveled. Amazingly, Jesus didn't follow the Pharisee's protocol and expectancies. Now, now this washing didn't mean his hands were dirty. He'd been out working the fields and needed to clean off the dirt and grime from his carpentry or farming. That's not what was the case. But this was ceremonial washing, and it was seriously detailed. You had to have a, a minimum amount of water, which one reference says about an eggshell and a half. And you take that amount of water, and the first thing you do is you pour it over the tips of your fingers and let it run down through your wrist. Having done that, you press your fist into your palm on both sides. Then you get another minimum amount of water, and you pour it from your wrist down through your fingertips. That's the ceremonial washing that Jesus just didn't do. The lawyers and the Pharisees expected that before a meal and after a meal, And oftentimes, between courses of the meal, 
the ceremonial washing. Right from the get-go, Jesus is invited. He comes in, sits down, and skips the eggshells full of water. He just, just ignores it. And the Pharisee is amazed. He's marveled. I love the use of language. He's marveled. He's not washing! <laughs> really? It's that big a deal. He's totally been out of shape. Listen, there are times when Jesus doesn't meet our expectancies. It doesn't mean that he's wrong. So Jesus doesn't wash. Verse 39 says this, Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones! Look at the exclamation point. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. Just a side point, it appears that giving resolves greed in our hearts. After the man is marveling at Jesus' lack of washing, Jesus responds to their thoughts. And you know, what a way to kick off a dinner. Jesus' way of let's get this party started. He turns to the host and all the guests, foolish ones. Here, have a seat over here. He sits down, foolish ones. Boy, that's a way to kick things off. Tells them that they're hypocrites. You put on a great show, but inside you're, you're just empty. You don't get it. You're doing some things. You're being some things, but it's all for show. He just lets them have it. And that's in comparison to Luke 7, the example of last week, where this sinner woman's externals certainly needed much improvements, but her internals were right, and Jesus responded to and respected that internal motivation, not to justify her externals, but to help her overcome and change toward his guidance. And then after this, Jesus moves into what's known as a series of woes, direct accusations. First, Jesus charges the Pharisees, and then he turns his attention to another group known as the lawyers. And, and I looked at that word, and sometimes, again, words come out to me, and I think, well, what's that mean? What's a woe? <laughs> what's a woe? Jesus is all up into this woe stuff. What's a woe? So I looked in a multitude of translations, and they all say, whoa. <laughs> and I found one translation that I think was very helpful. The New Living translates woe as, what sorrow awaits you? Six times he approaches this audience, actually seven, says, what sorrow awaits you? He's... He's very direct. There's exclamation points. He's really kicking off the party with a bang, and he's letting them know, listen, if you stay on this path, there is trouble ahead. There is sorrow that awaits you if you remain living like this. If, if you think you can act and live and talk this way, Without any repercussions, I'm here to warn you, whoa, there is sorrow that awaits you. In verse 42 is the first woe. 
Woe to you Pharisees! You tithe, returning 10%, mint and rue and all manner of herbs. Of course, mint is a very small production, a very small thing, very, very tiny. It's a small plant in and of itself, and then you return 10% of that. That's a tiny amount. Rue is actually kind of a weed. They were returning tithe on wheat. You couldn't even eat the stuff. And pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Jesus said, you know, the tithing's great. You guys have taken it to the next level. That's awesome. But really, you've lost sight of what matters. Justice and the love of God. You're taking attention to the smallest of details, but inside, you don't get it. You don't realize what's happening. You've totally forgot the purpose behind your practice. Verse 43, he stays at it. Woe to you Pharisees! You love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. The issue Jesus addresses is pride. In this case, their religion was for a matter of reputation, for social advantage, so people would recognize them. Give me a title. Give me a position. Let me be in a place where people look at me and notice me and recognize me. Put my picture on the church website, bless God. It's a matter of social recognition. Their practices were for self-glorification rather than God-glorification. Verse 44, he starts again. Woe to you, what sorrow awaits you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For the third time, Jesus making bold and blunt statements. Now this next thing is interesting. You're like graves which are not seen. And the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Uh, Candidly, that seems like a very odd statement to me. It's very unusual you got to dig back into the Old Testament, and you'll find a place in the Old Testament law in the book of Numbers where the Scripture records, if in an open field you touch a person who is slain by a sword or who has died, or a bone of a man or a grave, you shall be unclean for seven days. If you're in an open field and you're walking along and you touch a grave, you're unclean for seven days. Now, now for that reason, the devout Jews, they didn't want to accidentally walk over a grave or touch a dead person, and so they would whitewash gravestones that were buried out in the field someplace. They'd whitewash them. So as you're walking along, whoa, look at that white marker. Walk around that. I don't want to end up being unclean for seven days. So the accusation that Jesus makes to these Pharisees is like, you are like an unmarked grave. You're coming in contact. When people come in contact with you, they are unwittingly becoming unclean. You are damaging them, and they don't even know the damage is being done. You're not only personally dead and buried in an unmarked tomb, but you're harming others with your deadness. Well, it's getting pretty tight at dinner, as you can imagine. After three lashings out over a dinner when you've invited a special guest, things are kind of tight. People are like, are there dessert forks? 
Folks are, are messing with their napkins, right? In fact, it gets so tense that look at verse 45. Then one of the lawyers, evidently this is a subgroup of these who are very, very acute about the Old Testament law. One of the lawyers said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. Hey, 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 you're hitting close here, Jesus. I mean, you're tagging the Pharisees, but we don't like these reprimands. Don't, don't include us in the scolding that you're giving these others. You know, sinful humanity doesn't appreciate accountability. Accountability is what reveals the gap between what we say and what we do. In what we proclaim and how we act. Accountability help us to recognize if those things are in alignment and in agreement or if there's a gap between the two. And, and accountability points out the gap. Well, it, the, the lawyers were in the business of keeping up appearances. Listen, I just want to declare some things. I just want to proclaim some things. I just want to wear a badge that says this is who I am and what I believe. Don't expect me to actually be what I say that I am. They're offended by that. Verse 46, of course, Jesus says, hey, hey, sorry, man. I, okay, let me backtrack. No, no, that's not what Jesus does at all. It's like, oh, oh, that's a problem, is it? And Jesus turns to them, woe to you also, lawyers. What sorrow awaits you folks as well? You load men with burdens hard to bear. You yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Boy, when you're keeping up appearances, isn't it amazing if I'm just trying to be something on the outside that often we expect more of others than of ourselves? If I'm just all about the appearance, isn't it amazing how often we excuse ourselves and condemn others? Sometimes when you're in the keeping up appearances band, the way of dealing with our own shortcomings is to try to keep the attention on other people's shortcomings. The lawyers had a practice that they called this. It was called building a fence around the law. Building a fence around the law. Here's what the lawyers would do. If this was the Old Testament law, this is something you're to do or not to do, this is right here. They would create a law that was above and beyond that law, that would circle it. They called it a fence. That way, if you happened to break the lawyer's law, you still hadn't broken God's law. It, it was like a, a speed bump, if you will, to slow you down before you actually were speeding. You, you all with me? And that's what they did, and they just got into all kind of minutia with this. For instance, in the Old Testament, you're not to work on the Sabbath day. Don't work on the Sabbath day. It's a day of rest. And so the lawyers, well, what's it mean to work? When are you working? And when are you not working? How far can you walk in a day's time before it turns into work? 
How much can you lift around the house before it turns into work? These are the kind of things those folks got into. Now, one of the things they did is they said, you know what, it's, it's going to be work if on the Sabbath day you tie knots in a rope, that's work. And their reasoning was that ropes were associated with farming and with animals and with herding, and you would tie ropes around different ways and, uh, to corral them, to work with them, to do the farming. Ropes were engaged in fishing and in seafare and with boats, and if you're tying knots, then you're part of working. So they said you can't tie knots on the Sabbath, except for the ladies. Because the ladies of that time and in their garments, their fasteners were not zippers and buttons, but ropes. Long pieces of cloth that they held their garments together by tying. And so it was legitimate for the ladies to tie knots in their clothes so they could remain in the public eye on the Sabbath day. Now, here's where the lawyers and what Jesus is so ripped about. He says, you're putting things on people and you don't even obey them yourselves. They forgot what the Sabbath was all about. You're supposed to rest. You're supposed to take a day off. You're not supposed to work seven days a week. You're supposed to take a day off. You're supposed to chill out. Be around your family. Spend time with God. Sleep a little longer. Eat a little more. Get a day of rest. This is what you're supposed to do. They forgot the purpose of the rest and honor God in that rest. You're saying, I trust God for the six days by giving him this day. That's what that's all about. They forgot all of that. And so these lawyers, here's what they would do. If you had to get water on the Sabbath day, it wouldn't be right to tie a knot in a bucket and drop it into the well because that would be work. But if you get your wife or your daughter to use a piece of her garment and tie it to the bucket and lower it into the well, well, then that's okay. That's ridiculous. That's why Jesus was mad. He said, look what you're doing. You're putting these fences around the law and expecting things of all these people And you're making a game of it. Like, how can you get around it? How can you do something else without that? The the purpose was totally forgotten. Jesus said, look out. I'm warning you. Sorrow awaits you for living like that. Verse 47. Woe to you! You build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. In fact, You bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Verses 49, 50, and 51 go on to elaborate a little bit on that. But the point is this. Rather than confess their father's sins, they built tombs and memorials to the prophets their fathers killed. They didn't say our our fathers, our forefathers, our ancestors were wrong. They should not have killed the prophets. They wouldn't confess that. Instead, let's just build a nice tomb, a nice memorial, a nice addendum. Let's try to cover our bad deeds with some good deeds, and that'll make it okay. Of course, we learn in Genesis with Adam and Eve, covering over doesn't replace confession. Verse number 52. Woe to you lawyers! What sorrow awaits you? You've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourself, for those were entering in you hindered. 
What is a key of knowledge? A key of knowledge is God's Word, the Scriptures. And the lawyers had reinterpreted and overinterpreted and misinterpreted God's law that it became a hindrance to them rather than to help the people it was designed to help. Instead of realizing I need to take a day off and stop working and bask in the pleasures of God's creation and recognize a great creator and my trust in his providing. Instead of that, it was all about these minute details that in the end weren't of God and didn't matter of God and they kept people from what the word of God really was it was revelation of himself on how to be in a right relationship with him not a right relationship with all the do's and don'ts of ceremonial law kingdom of God is not about how you wash your hands Jesus was ticked upset with them you totally missed the point you cheated people from knowing the point. These lawyers had become referees who never knew the joy of playing the game. They were teachers who, who no longer loved mathematics or social studies, but they loved putting red marks and grading papers. They were officers who no longer served peace and safety, but they loved issuing citations. Jesus said, sorrow awaits you. This, verse 53. And as he said these things, while Jesus was talking, as he said these things to them, the scribes and Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. While Jesus is still talking, they become hostile and provocative and returning accusation and trying to tear him down. Here's what pride does. Pride rejects accountability and defends error. Pride counterattacks. When Jesus says there's a gap between what you say and what you do, pride attacks. Pride justifies the gap. Pride validates the gap. Pride attacks the one who's bringing accountability. And all of that occurred over dinner. Jesus is the guest. He, was he didn't barge his way. He was invited to that meal. And once he's inside and at the table, I can't imagine that the host thought that's what would take place. That before they're through two or three courses of the meal, maybe it's not even close to finished, there is a flat-out argument. There is yelling and bickering and counterpoints. It is throw-down verbal fellowship happening over dinner. Over dinner. You know, the other dinners, the banquets we've highlighted and spoke about, you read them in Scripture, Jesus' compassion and availability is evident. But this dinner shows us there's another side of Jesus that we cannot, must not overlook. 
Yes, Jesus embodied this new option of forgiveness and change we talked about last week. But, but within his approach to humanity, there is another option that Jesus turns to on occasion. Multiple times, Jesus directly confronted their falsehood. Six, seven woes with exclamation points. There at dinner, woe to you. What sorrow awaits you? Woe to you. What sorrow awaits you? I I want us to appreciate today when Jesus' compassion is ignored, his confrontation is another option. Even today as we we read through that dinner environment. There were snickers throughout this audience. Like, what kind of dinner would that be? I wonder how many of us thought, wow, that would really be uncomfortable. And why I made a little quip about where are the dessert forks. Why did we all chuckle? Because we would be uncomfortable. We'd want to get out of there. We want to get away from that situation. We're... we're Typically not too comfortable with that kind of confrontation. It seems to me today in our culture, many prefer to avoid those kinds of encounters. And when we do those kinds, have those kinds of direct accountability confrontations, they can quickly unravel into shouting matches. In fact, read the paper, they turn into violence oftentimes. Because we don't, we're not necessarily sure how to handle those situations. And if we've got a history of handling them poorly, we steer clear of them. I mean, how many of us have heard the adage, don't talk about politics or religion, right? Don't bring on the crazy arguments over dinner. Sometimes when we're leery of these personal interactions, Instead, we just post our views online. We're more bold when we're not looking people eye to eye. And we don't fear the typed response like we do the personal response. In confrontational situations like that, our fight or flight instincts are strong. And unfortunately, when there's unresolved conflict, it fertilizes roots of bitterness. I was still pretty young when, when I learned my first confrontation skill. I remember I was in a class and speaker, a teacher was Gerald Grant, and he said, if you need to, we're working with somebody and you need to give them some advice, he said, remember plus, minus, plus. Plus, minus, plus. Tell them what they're doing right. Tell them what they need to improve. And then tell them something else they're doing right. The way of confronting plus minus plus. Obviously, I've remembered that. Later on in life, I've taken a number of personal, interpersonal communication courses, and one of them taught me the steps of conflict resolution. I've returned to that often. Understand the problem, brainstorm ideas to solve the problem discuss the ideas, choose an idea that all parties can accept, 
and then use the idea and after a period of time reevaluate the idea. Later on in life, I was recommended a fantastic book about resolving conflict called Crucial Conversations, and it continues to be a go-to resource for me and our leadership team. Now, why? Why do I and other people like me and you, why do we appreciate those resources? Because many of us are just not comfortable with confrontation. But that's not true with Jesus. He did not back away from confrontation. I'm more intrigued about how he pointed these things out than what he pointed out. I'm more intrigued with his approach. Boldly, multiple times, Jesus confronted the hypocrisy. He reproached them. He rebuked them. He scolded them. He admonished them. He chastised them. He berated them publicly, repeatedly. Woe to you! What sorrow awaits you? Jesus provoked the host in his own home. The man who asked him to dinner was a target of Jesus' accusations and charges. The man could have said, I invited him in my house to eat my food, and, and this is what I get? And the answer is yes. If that's what's needed to grab our attention, to reveal our need for repentance, to elicit a response in our life, you know what this illustrates? It illustrates this. Nothing prevents Jesus from dealing with the souls of humanity. Even in that Pharisee's own house, he loved the man so much that he would faithfully warn him of his crimes and his errors. Compassion wasn't getting the job done with the Pharisees. Oh, Jesus didn't quit. He didn't give up on them. He didn't write them off to hell. Rather, he said, I'll take another approach. And that approach was in your face confrontation. Jesus knows. Not everyone allows compassion to bring them to truth. Jesus knows that some of us need confrontation. For whatever reason, we need him to be very clear and direct. But Jesus' ultimate goal is to open our eyes in any way possible. He wants us to see our errors, to confront them, to confess them, and to change. Some people, Jesus knows, he needs to be discreet with them. Other, he needs to be direct. Can I say, even with some issues in our lives, he can be discreet with us. But in some other issues in our lives, he needs to be direct with us. Compassion may be necessary for the downcast and the hurting, but confrontation necessary for the pride. And, and can I just remind us of this? If Jesus determines that confrontation is necessary in order to grasp our attention and make us aware and to right our relationship with him, nobody confronts better than Jesus. 
Because you see, not only does he hear our words and observe our actions, but he knows our thoughts. He discerns our hearts. It records in the Gospel of John that he knows what is in us. He knows man. In these confrontations, the people that Jesus lashed out at didn't have to verbalize what they were thinking. Jesus knew their thoughts. And he responds to them and he replies to them. We, you know what? You and I might fool some people by keeping our mouths shut, by keeping our actions hidden. We might play coy. But I remind us today, Jesus is never fooled. And if you and I are not addressing things that Jesus knows must be addressed, he loves us enough to shine his holy spotlight on us. His tone might seem a bit sharp. Shocking. His demeanor might seem a little bit out of sorts and socially unacceptable, but hear me today. His motive is love. He cares. So when needed, he confronts. He came to seek and to save the lost, even those who don't know they're lost, even those who don't believe that they're lost. And so there are times when Jesus brings another option and approaches us with confrontation. He directly challenges our rationalizations, our justifications. And rather than compassion, Jesus brings another prescription for pride, and that is confrontation. In modern words, in our modern lives, if necessary, the Lord will very clearly deal with each of us and say, you need to deal with this. Jesus is frank. He is clear. He is certain. And it is evident he does not play. He's not intimidated. He's not confused. He's not misdirected. Woe to you. What sorrow awaits you. Jesus is saying to us at different times and even perhaps right now, this cannot continue. This must stop. This needs to end Even, even when you and I act like the, the Pharisees and the lawyers, Jesus loves us too much to ignore us. If his compassion doesn't pull us toward him as he hopes, maybe confrontation will get the job done. It is another of Jesus' options. Let me draw your attention to this passage of Scripture. And I'm going to pray here in a moment. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, beginning at verse 12. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing 
even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Look at verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's the directness of our Lord and Savior. By all means, by all means, it is the hope of our Savior that we would invite him to dinner, that we would welcome him into our day-to-day lives, welcome him into the banquet of our houses. That's absolutely. But we ought to know this. Christ's company is challenging. His interactions with us aren't always like the sinner woman in Luke chapter 7 where there's loving tears and anointed feet and forgiveness flowing. That's not always the case. We've got to listen to his words. We've got to accept his accountability and act on his instruction. If you would say to me or others or even to the Lord himself, Jesus is just being mean to me. No. No, he's not. Other approaches have yet to succeed, haven't yet brought us to repentance, to surrender, to turning toward him. And so he chooses to directly confront. You see how he speaks in these moments is another option to get us to hear what he is trying to say. And while there'll be some humanity in us, very likely, that want to counterattack like the Pharisees and the lawyers, I I provoke us today that we accept his accountability. We confess our faults. We change our ways, follow his leading, respond to his call. He's not being mean. He's trying another option to get our attention so that we would follow him. You know, I wonder today, I have to ask this question and I'll pose it to myself and We can think about it as I pray. I wonder if my current trouble is because I have not dealt with something that Jesus has called me to change. I wonder if I'm living in some woe and sadness right now because I have refused to do as he asks. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us so much.
So much, Lord, that you gave your life for us. So much that you continue to seek us. You continue to pursue us. Lord, I pray that you would forgive my pride. Forgive me, Lord, in those moments that I am I'm spiritually deaf. Forgive me for being ignorant of your word. Lord, in responding to you, I want my life, my attitude, my demeanor to be like that sinner woman in, in Luke 7 and not like the Pharisees in this example today. Lord, I prefer to respond to your compassion. But if the situation calls for your confrontation, may I respond rightly to that as well. Help me, Lord, to recognize your, your work in my life whether or not I understand it, whether or not I, it meets my expectations. Help me, Lord, to discover, open up my eyes to realize you are reaching for my soul. And for some reason, my life matters to you so very much that you'll do whatever it takes as you're not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Can the church say amen? Amen. amen. I'm going to send you home with a little tension on the mind today. And I do that intentionally. If I could just beg you to say yes to Jesus. Just say yes. Just say yes. He knows what he's doing even when we don't. He sees the way out even when we don't. Just... Just say yes to Jesus. Could we just take a moment here? Would you raise your hands across this auditorium, whether that means you or somebody around you or near you or somebody watching online? Can we just pray for an attitude of surrender, an attitude of yes in this place right now? That's awesome. Raise your voices, Lord Jesus. Lord, compel, draw, 
minister, O Lord, to each and every one, men and women, young and old. Lord, you know circumstances, you know situations. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your willingness to be direct. Lord, help us to say yes. Help us, Lord, to confess. Help us, Lord, to accept your accountability. Oh, Lord, help each and every one. Lord, we believe your promise that you don't want anyone to fail. You don't want anyone to fall short. We know, Lord, we believe, we trust. It's your desire that everyone would turn to you and follow your ways and be your disciple. Lord, help us with the yes. Help us with the yes, Lord. Regardless of his approach, it's because he loves us. Isn't it amazing how quickly the presence of the Lord responds when we just say yes? He's right there. When I thought he was distant, when I thought he was mad, when I thought he'd rejected me, when I thought he was done with me, when I just say yes, he's there. In an instant, in a moment, he, he's there when I will just say yes. You've been listening to the Living Faith Everett podcast series. Tune in next week for the next part of the series, or join us online at livingfaithministries.church. In the Holy Ghost, you give me peace.